0: Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that translates Trump. Take a look at the existential threats to America. We discuss the news of the day and what it means for you. We also welcome your emails. Now, if someone wants to email, I don't know what to do, Claude. Oh, sure. You just send an email to billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Today, we will hear from my good friend, Dr. John Kernut, C U R N U T T E. John was my student at Harvard. He was a freshman in the dorm, and I was a law student taking care of him. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, got a, went to Harvard Medical School, got his degree, got a Ph.D. in biochemistry. I didn't do that. Did you do that, Claude? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk to him about all aspects of this. He's the guy. He's my go-to guy. He's my best friend. And uh, he's very thoughtful, very reasonable. He's a doc. And I maybe maybe I'm a little off on the on the medicine side of this, the virus side. We'll we'll figure it out. So let's welcome Dr. John Carnut to the show. Dr. Carnut, to John, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Billy. All right, what do we got here with the coronavirus? Is this is this a threat to the well-being of the nation?
1: Well, it is. Uh, it, it is a serious virus. Um, you know, it has a propensity to go deep into the lungs in, in many people, and anytime that happens, uh, you know, pneumonia is the inflammatory response to that as the body tries to deal with it. It's it's serious, and so yes, it, it's up there uh, with some of our more serious viruses. It's not in the same league with Ebola. Uh, people are very familiar with that. Uh, it's it's uh, it's somewhat related. Uh, uh, to MERS, uh, it certainly the virus is similar, but MERS, as you recall, had about a 30 plus percent uh, mortality once all things were sorted out. SARS, uh, which we dealt with uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, had about a 10% mortality. Uh, this one, we're not quite sure what the mortality is, might be around one plus percent, uh, might be a little bit lower than that. We can talk about that. Uh, so it, it's, it's there. Uh, in the um, uh, uh, in the uh, shelf of serious viral infections that that we have to deal with. so absolutely we it's appropriately taken it this seriously. Uh, as respiratory viruses go, it's quite contagious uh, because it inhabits both the lower and upper airways, so droplet spread is quite there. Uh, and you see that the way that the virus has spread around, but you also see it really, I think, as we get a better handle on the mortality rates that show a large number of people get it, a uh, relatively small number, but a very significant number get it. So it's in that, in that range, in my opinion, Bill, where we have to take it as a, as a deadly threat, but it is not Ebola, it is not SARS, it is not MERS
0: let me do this not as devil's advocate but as these are my honest views push back on some of this and, and just get your honest reaction you and I have talked about this earlier too you know if I were a virologist if I were interested in studying viruses everything would look like a virus to me you know and if if I were a doc that's the only thing I I'd, I'd, I'd have but uh, on my mind but l- let me let me just jump in on I'll pick up on one point and then I'm going to pick up a lot of other points you tell me where I'm wrong I've been tracking this mortality rate in the. US here since March 3rd. And it's going down and it's now about one, three, uh, that is of the people who test positive about 1.3% die. That's one point. Second point. Most of these people are old. Uh, I wrote a piece for the wall, uh, for the Fox news in which I identified myself as former secretary of education over 70 and with a couple of underlying conditions. So it's not that I'm unsympathetic to the elderly. I am one, but. It is primarily on the elderly, and then I just I just heard Dr. Burks. You know this, Dr. Burks, Deborah Burks, John, who's been yeah. on uh, these press conferences, it's very impressive, I think. Yeah, she said mortality rate. You know, people have been looking at the numbers in Italy, and people just need to realize not that people should, you know, think this is great news, but she said the average uh, uh, age of the people who die in Italy is eighty-five. Well, you know, I, I, I happen to look up life expectancy in Italy, and it's eighty-three point five. Uh, I'm not trying to diminish this, but one, it seems to me the, the mortality rate overall is pretty low. It is isolated in the elderly. Not that that's any cause for joy or celebration, but, but it is the elderly. And it's a lot of the very elderly and very fragile uh, who are among the largest part of those dying from this. And the other thing about it is maybe another whole set of considerations. It seems to be... Um, uh, what's the medical word for it, John? You know, uh, um, dense in certain areas and not in others. So I, I just heard that sixty percent of the positive cases are now in the New York area.
1: Well, so uh, first let's talk about mortality, and then let's let's talk about the epidemiology and how it's distributed. Uh, so regarding mortality, uh, I, I think you, you're right uh, that it is uneven in its uh, its impact uh, on uh, on on um, by age. Uh, and it is, um, and, and it is regional. We'll talk about that in a second. The, the actual numbers, uh, are interesting. And, uh, I've been playing around with the numbers a lot. And I think, um, a very important point that I think a lot of people have missed, uh, which actually is good news. And there was actually a nice, uh, article this morning, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, from a professor at Stanford about this is that if you look at how we define the denominator, that is the total number of cases, um, those are really people, they were doing testing. These are people who are actually infected. These are people who have symptoms or have had extremely close contact. Most of them are, have symptoms, and that constitutes the denominator plus those that present to the hospital. Of course, they're given priority as far as testing. And the number that we don't know uh, is really, in the general population, uh, what is what's called prevalence. That is, how many people are actually are carrying the virus and may be completely asymptomatic. And that number, some people have estimated it's half the people. Some say it may even be large, larger than that. Uh, where we then may have denominators. It
0: was a P word. What was it?
1: So prevalence, that is, how many people have it. Uh, in the population. And one of the things that will be, will be important is we get broader testing, uh, and we don't have to prioritize it for people with symptoms, close contact, or those entering the hospital or being evaluated going to go into the hospital, is that denominator will get larger. And the deaths, of course, we have a very, at least in the United States and in many other countries, we have a very accurate number of what those deaths are. And so one of the things that will happen is that we, very likely, my prediction, um, and those are some others, is that that the true number, that is, if you come come in contact with the virus, get infected with the virus, you have several ways you can proceed. One is you may be asymptomatic. That may be a substantial number of people, half or greater. Uh, Some will have mild symptoms. Others will have more severe symptoms. And as we look at that, so your 1.3% number uh, could go quite a bit lower. And I think as we have the discussion, which I completely agree with, uh, of how do we balance and try to thread the needle in terms of public health, uh, compassion for the elderly and even younger people who die, and the fact that we, we can't just stay in, in lockdown forever, uh, that I think will emerge uh in in all of that. And so one of the the factors uh that enters into this is that this idea that the president has in his team of waiting a certain number of days is fifteen days, maybe that'll get extended a little bit to gather more data uh will be critical to really refine these calculations because we I think we're off on the mortality rate personally. And then it may be even lower than what you say. Now Regarding the, so, you think weak- it
0: could be lower? You don't think it could be higher?
1: No, in fact, I, I would actually say that the kind of numbers we've been talking about are going to be the upper boundary of what of what the true number is going to be.
0: Is that because the uh, what we the, the, we calculate it now based on positive tests as opposed to people who have the, the bug?
1: Well, and in effect, those are closely related because right now, yes, it's all based on positive tests. But remember, we are being very selective in who we test. So priority is given to people who are symptomatic or sick, uh, and we're not testing people who are asymptomatic. And to get the true mortality rate, imagine, let's even just say, roughly speaking, 50% of the people that get the virus remain asymptomatic. Those people are not being tested. So if you add those, that number of people into the denominator, it would drop from your 1.3% down to perhaps 0.6%, just as an example. And we just don't know those numbers. And so I think the president's strategy of uh, being very uh, aggressive during this period of time, and a number of the governors, I live here in California, so we are going through a pretty aggressive strategy, uh, to wait so that we number one try to flatten this curve as everybody has said it's almost become a cliche but it's so important and as we get more data which is one one of the points Dr. Burks I think makes eloquently as we get more data and are able to computerize it and regionalize it we'll get a better idea of the true mortality uh, and we will be able to guide public policy and how we begin to start uh, revving up the engines on the jet. Uh, and can we start, you know, the four-engine jet, can we start uh, jet number one? When can we start jet number two? That type of a, of a process will take place. And then factored into that is, is the lumpiness or, or unevenness of, of the infection. And, uh, and there was a great point made by one of the members of the, uh, the task force, uh, which is that in some areas, like New York, New York City, this is really dealing now with mitigate, mitigation. You cannot contain it at this point. It is just taking off too much. And therefore, that whole strategy is very different than, let's say, if you're in Iowa or Kansas or, or one of those wonderful uh, states out there, you know, or rural Illinois, where I grew up. Um, you know, there, the, the possibility of containment Uh, and the ability to, uh, to contain is, is is much better. And that's, I think, where part of this threading of the needle may take, be able to take place, which is it's not a one size fits all. It's not, you know, the, what's done in New York ought to be done across the entire country, nor what's, let's say, being done in Dixon, Illinois, where I grew up, ought to be done across the country. There there are different epidemiologic uh, considerations in both. But one of the things is you start to then deal with the regional differences and allow engine number one on the jet to, to start to fire up. Let's say in Iowa, Nebraska, and whatnot, you may want to keep engine number four, which is New York City, you know, not to fire that one up until quite a bit later, until you work your way through this. So that's that's what the numbers have found. Me.
0: All right, yeah, I want to talk about policy here a little later. I just want to do th- do some medicine or biology or virology here with you first, okay? okay. And then then we'll do the policy questions, because I, I, I think you're right. I think I agree with you, and you are not just a great doctor. You're a great citizen and and thinker and, and actively engaged in, in um, public affairs and, and pay attention to it. I heard this morning, tell me what this is, they said this was also good news. The coronavirus does not appear to mutate quickly. Uh, it's, uh, well, it's, it's steady or consistent or doesn't change shape quickly. Well, what does that mean and why is that good news?
1: Well, the primary reason it's good news is that the success of the vaccine program will depend on the virus being genetically fairly stable. Uh, and think about influenza, which really shuffles the deck. Uh, uh, and picks up new cards and discards other cards every year, uh, we have to come up with pretty much a new vaccine every year. So if this remains genetically stable, and these what are called RNA viruses have a tendency not to be very stable. But this one so far is behaving that way. That is that is good news uh, from the vaccine point of view. I think also from a diagnostic point of view, it helps... Uh, that, you know, at least whatever uh, segments of, of, of the RNA that we're measuring in the various tests, this, this helps. Uh, one thing also is um, what we'll have to see is if we do get effective antiviral agents, one of the things that happens in viruses and happens in bacteria is the the natural background ability of these organisms to mutate we will start to select for resistant organisms. And we saw this, you know, we've seen this with bacteria. We've seen this with, uh, with a number of viruses. Uh, SARS will be able to do some of this as well. So one of the things, if we get a successful antiviral, what we likely are going to see is some mutations emerge. Those mutations, those changes, may uh, render the virus less sensitive to the drug but one of the precedents that can happen is that that also might make the virus less uh contagious less uh pathogenic. So again, um the number one thing is is the stability of the gene is good for the vaccine uh, regarding other elements we'll have to wait and see.
0: What about um I notice uh, you tell me get tell me how this works. I know you know how this works. You've taken drugs to market but um I heard Dr. Oz, and then I heard Dr. McCary from Johns Hopkins. Marty McCary a Fox News contributor, he's a surgeon. He's the guy, by the way, who did my Whipple. You remember when I had the Whipple surgery? I know you do. Yep. <laughs> uh, anyway, they were both talking, um, and another doctor who uh, serves the uh, Orthodox Jewish community in New York, Parkland, New York, the Zelenko, uh, saying that there was reports and I guess some studies of some real success with, um, this, uh, Hydroxyl chloroquine. Hydroxyl chloroquine. It's a, a a drug that's a malaria drug, right? Uh, an anti-malarial yeah, it, drug. anti and
1: lupus-like diseases. Yes.
0: And they cited a study in France, and they cited another study, and they're you know they're they're apparently they've shifted the FDA protocol so they can test this one, assess this one right away. I wonder if you've heard these reports and have any opinion, or if you could explain to us a little bit how that works, that process.
1: Yeah, there are a number of parts. One is uh, I was CEO of an a antiviral company, actually, back in 2008 to 2010, uh, and we were working on strategies to block viruses. So this is something, as I listened to all of this, uh, something that resonates with uh, uh, really working on, on an influenza drug back in the last pandemic for in- influenza back in 2009, uh, 2010. Now, what, what, what's, what's interesting about this, the first question you have to ask for a candidate drug, so this hydroxychloroquine, is a drug uh, that is a variety of the chloroquine drug, which has been used for many years for, uh, for malaria. Uh, this particular form is also known as Plaquenil. I've actually used it in a number of patients i treated, uh, I've uh, dealt for decades with children with congenital immune deficiencies uh, from uh, some of the mothers or some of these immune deficiencies have a form, a mild form of lupus, and one can actually use Plaquenil no hydroxychloroquine to help control that. And so I personally have actually seen uh, moms who've been on it for long periods of time uh, that have done quite well with You've got to be careful with it. It's not to be dealt with lightly, but it's quite a safe drug. So that's that's a, it's a well-known drug, and it's been used, uh, and many of us have actually seen it uh, you know, uh, directly in, in our medical practices. Now, with regard to its potential promise here, going back to when I was the head of this virology company, one of the things that we were always looking for would be ways to impair the ability of the virus to enter the host cell or interfere with its ability to grow. And that there's certainly a mechanism by which hydroxychloroquine might work that way, and in fact, that's part of the way it works with malaria. So uh, there is a mechanistic rationale to this that I think is quite reasonable, um, and the anecdotal evidence which has been described in France, in in, uh, in China, and others uh, also uh, certainly raises. Of, of really encouraging signs, and the piece the, really the piece that's missing uh, are really on the on the safety side, the piece that's missing is is the drug safe in the setting of somebody with severe respiratory infection? That's one uh, and, and most importantly that we're all interested in is does it have enough of an impact um, in, in for this particular virus? To interfere with the replication and the infectivity of the virus by by altering its ability to infect and multiply in cells, and there and and one can infer from what we're seeing that there seems to be some activity. And the question is going to be, how strong is that activity? Is it weak? Is it is it moderately strong? Is it very strong? And under what setting can you use it prophylactically, or sh- or is it most effective? in the early phases of a symptomatic in- infection, or once that patient's on a ventilator, can you use it in the end stage? Those are all unanswered questions. But, but, I, but, I, but I, my, my bottom line is I think the clinical trials and the, the efforts to now try it, I think is appropriate. We're in the middle of a, of a very serious pandemic, uh, and I think the public health folks and the, uh, uh, everybody that's uh, doing it in New York is using a lot of clinical trials in different states. Uh, I, I think it's a really good idea, and I have cautious optimism that w- this will at least have some role, at the very least, in, in terms of helping to control the disease.
0: Can I ask you if you uh, hazard a guess? Cautious optimism will do. And would that be based on different patients that will have different effects on different patients, or, or or other factors? What would be the main things if it were yes and no?
1: Yeah, So I, you know, let's assume that it has its antiviral activity. Uh, if it's a relatively weak agent, it might be more appropriate as a prophylactic agent, that is somebody who's come in very close contact with somebody uh, and has just tested positive that is asymptomatic. And the stronger that antiviral activity is, whatever gets demonstrated, would then perhaps then move it deeper into, let's say, you're, you're symptomatic and you've just been admitted to the hospital or just seen in the emergency room, And I think the highest hurdle to jump over is would it be able to help somebody who is just overrun with virus on a ventilator with deep infection and still at that point where the virus is multiplying like crazy in the body? Can it interrupt that process? And so the biggest variable, in my opinion, is going to be at what stage of the disease are you? Is it early? Is it mid or is it late? That may be the
0: biggest variable. I got you. Very good. I want to get. To, I want to get to policy in a section. I, want, I don't want you to give up your hat, uh, John, and your expertise as a doc and as a scientist, but get into policy, which obviously must draw on the yeah. science. But, but 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 let's stay in the pure um, a virus and, and yeah. science part for a minute. Is there anything about this bug, this virus, uh, this coronavirus that, uh, that we should know that we're not hearing enough about on TV? It seems we're hearing the same things. Over and over again. Is there anything else you'd tell us about it that people are not as aware of as they should be?
1: Uh, Yeah. Not really. I mean, I, I think I think the stories are actually pretty well. Uh, I mean, nothing jumps to mind like, you know, a, a big aha that people are missing. No.
0: Talk about policy. And again, uh, you know, you are always who you are. So I'm not trying to shift you from your expertise. Uh, uh, the audience heard me heard me on Fox. I, you know, I start out my interview by saying it's a whole lot going on here in this country right now. Part of it is this bug. I said my reference point is and you remember this, John, from way back when you were at Harvard and I was Proctor and talking about Reinhold Niebuhr and (laughs) the irony of American history and the children of light and the children of darkness. That's what I said on Fox. I said, there are children of light and children of darkness. The children of light are, you know, they think everything's good and fine and everything's going to turn out well and um uh, and the children of darkness think it's never going to turn out well it's just all going to go to hell and, you know anyway and i said you know we need a proper kind of mix we need to be aware of the darkness aware of the risks but we also you know need to be uh, optimistic operationally Uh, you know what can we do and i said i think the president here is kind of a child of light you know he's he's saying let's you know let's get some things done and uh, but he's quite aware of the danger he said of course i'll listen i'll listen to the science here but but overlay this with a couple other things that are going on i'll be damned you know i i think there are some people who are actually rooting for the virus uh, in the sense of uh, politics, I think they'd like this to destroy the president. I don't think some of them would mind if it destroyed the country. I've read a few essays. It's the end of America. It's the decline of America. America's place in the world. Blah blah blah. Take America down. I've heard some people say if it takes Trump down, it's worth it, even if it costs us a lot of lives. Yeah, you know, some really really horrible things. But it seems to me. But the president has this pretty close to right. Let's pay attention. Uh, Let's give help where it's needed, particularly in in places that are really red, really exploding. Uh, Bright red, like New York. Um, but then let's also think about other things, because we got to get this economy going. And it's not just a matter of money versus, you know, it's like money versus lives. That's not it. It's just, you know, people's lives and livelihoods are on the line. And a livelihood is more than money. It's pride. It's self-respect. It's getting out of the house. It's, you know, providing for, for families. And, and, and that's important, too. And, and indeed, the president said, if, if this economy goes down, if it really goes down, We'll have more people die from that because of want and need and stress and other things uh, than, than the virus. Um, g- just give me your, your reaction, your reaction to that.
1: Well, I'm uh, and I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I'm very much on the end of the spectrum that the president is on. Uh, and, and I would say that not only in my practice of medicine uh, for many years, uh, and in academic medicine for a number of years, but also in my world, my, my career in biotechnology, drug development, and whatnot, you know, you know, I've developed uh, a more 360 view of, of medicine and science and its role overall. Uh, and the, the thing uh, that, that uh, I agree with the president is that if one has to balance the two. And you've spoken eloquently about it. You've written about it. Uh, so I, I agree with you as well. And, and really, the devil is in the details of how one can do it. Uh, and we alluded to some of those details um, in, the, in the first segment of this that actually are driven uh, by an increasing understanding of the behavior of the virus, uh, its epidemiology, how it spreads, and kind of its overall genetics, and what the real mortality rate is and whatnot. And so all of that needs to be baked in uh, to this. I think the biggest opportunity that we have in terms of policy, public policy, is the regionality and the lumpiness of its of, of its presence. It's not evenly distributed. Lumpy in New York, lumpy uh, somewhat in, in parts of California uh, and whatnot. So... And, and the other thing is the other thing that we have going for us is that the the fact that we have delayed an explosive out, outburst of this uh, and it, you know, is is that it's given us time. Number one, to collect data, develop more advanced testing. Um, you mentioned things that might not be on the radar screen. This idea of testing convalescent plasma—that is to see whether or not somebody's actually had and in infection, it's a very standard thing we do in medicine, uh, can give us additional information. So we're going to get a lot more information, and I think, as Dr. Brooks has said, it allows us to get very granular about what do we do uh, by certain counties, by certain regions, and do that, And 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 the two strategies, and, and this is the other thing, which is then... Taking advantage of that, there are regions where you can start to start up those jet engines again and and get things going and and take um, now armed with tons of now diagnostic testing capabilities and a lot of knowledge about the disease and how it spread, uh, we can now have regions where we introduce aggressive testing if people are, are are symptomatic, we can track all of their contacts, do all of the classic containment work, quarantine people, maybe have the elderly, self-quarantine, uh, and, and, we can, and we can start to see who's actually been exposed, who's carrying immunity in their plasma. And, and by doing those kinds of things, we can do it. Uh, monitoring travel, you know, limiting travel, this would be tough for the economy, but, you know, from, let's say, epicenters like New York City, as you heard yesterday in the briefing, you know, those people should self-quarantine because they may well be carrying the virus to other parts of the country. We want to try to minimize that. So that I think is our great opportunity to agree the testing, the unevenness in uh, the possibility of doing regional containment uh, while we still have these big outbreaks in certain concentrated areas in the country.
0: All right. I want to disaggregate that and get to some specifics. First of all, I'm throwing everything at this problem now. Now that we're going to get all, all disciplines, all, all, all my thoughts here. Why is it that the bluer you get politically, the lumpier you get, you know, well, New York, you know, like, L.A., Seattle?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, one can come up. Uh, it, it's like what we deal with in science all the time. You know, one, can, one looks first for correlations. Uh, and then that's, that's a relatively low hurdle to get over. And we certainly see that kind of a correlation. Uh, whether there's a causation. Is there a tougher thing to prove? Uh, So is this just uh, a correlation? You know, we know this virus, with with its level of contagiousness, is going to be more prevalent in areas that have denser populations. Areas of denser population tend to be more blue. And so it could just be that coincidence. But but I also um, think, you know, we should not be paralyzed by political correctness. You know, maybe there are public policies that are more typical, uh, let's say, for some of the the given mayors of some of these cities. That if when we look back on it and say, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea that we allow X, Y, and Z. Maybe that they, and again, it's not bad intention necessarily, but there just may be some public health things that are not in the best interest of of how to handle uh, public health.
0: Good, yeah. Um, just a couple thoughts here. Uh, uh, one. Uh, You know, one of the reasons for the national gloom, I believe, which is not merited. Peggy Noonan wrote the other day, don't panic is rotten advice. I mean, what a stupid thing to write. Uh, But what does panic do? You know, that doesn't do anything positive. Uh, One of the reasons I think that we're more gloomy than we should be is that the two major media centers are New York and Los Angeles. Uh, And these are areas that are, you know, (laughs) more more affected than average by a lot uh that's that's one observation and then the other thing is go back to your lumpiness disaggregate as you're as you're starting your jet engine to use your analogy Uh, you know new york may be the last place you open up things but maybe dixon illinois where you were born and we know who else was born there ronald ronald wilson reagan my boss um, hey, my boss and your best friend, or at least I hope I still am your best friend. Right. His house both, is across
1: uh, the street from
0: me. <laughs> yeah, his house was across the street from you. I know you showed it to me. So that maybe we can open the, do I remember correctly, the lamplighter?
1: No. The what, though?
0: The lamplighter in Dixon, the place we went and had a, had a beer.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, the gas. The, the, yeah, Dick. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember the name of it now. Okay,
0: the, yeah. Okay. I, 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 okay I mean, That's where you showed me the hill that you had to run up in football. Yes. And the hill was about three feet tall. Anyway, uh, yeah. flat Flatlander. But, it, I mean, you yeah, showed me the real hills in the Adirondacks and the, the real mountains <laughs> that we went on a lot of trips together. But, I mean, you might be able yep. to open things up earlier in Dixon. Uh, and, yep. you know, we we're hearing a ton from Mayor uh, Governor Cuomo. And he's, you know, he's not all bad, and he's a smart guy, but it would be very different if we were hearing from Christy Noem, the, the governor of South Dakota, you know? she'd be giving a, a very different report I, and i don't mean to be unsympathetic to new york i am a new yorker we got a son in new york but i mean disaggregate so you know um disaggregate in several ways uh, not just regionally but but regionally i think makes some sense that you know you might be able to start the engines open up some stores some shops some restaurants in some parts of the country before you do in the in the a- areas that are major affected does that make sense Yep
1: absolutely um uh- and I think then um, using now the tools that we've now had a month or two to develop the 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 more the rapid the, the testing the more rapid testing uh, the ability to test whether somebody's carrying immunity that they now had the disease all of those tools can now be used uh, uh, locally people can then apply you know shifts they can apply distancing hand washing sanitation all of that type of thing. Uh, to to manage it locally, and I can tell you, I'm on I'm on two boards of directors two biotech companies and and I know it's it's a remarkable uh, watching uh, even in one's based in Boston and London the other one's based in uh, in San Francisco the one in San Francisco is even able uh, to, because of such critical work in the laboratory working with for critical pulmonary disease to actually. Uh, let handfuls of people into the lab on selected shifts to get critical work done that really is ongoing. So already you start to see people coming up with ways even in areas uh, that are, are heavily uh, at, least at high risk of being infected that, that are now already being done. So if you then say if you go out to South Dakota, Iowa, places like that, you could perhaps even even expand that by a lot more. But, again, take the best lessons. And if, by chance, one of these areas begins to take off, we now have the various U.S. experiments going on. We have the New York experiment. We have the Los Angeles experiment, the Seattle experiment. And we can take lessons learned from that, apply them, let's say, to Omaha or to, you know, um, you know to, to Fargo, and we can say, okay, here's what we now need to do. It's starting to tick up. This is what we need to do. So I, 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 I feel it. optimistic
0: that we can do that. See, so yeah, there was a report I haven't read anything. I just heard on the news that um, Hong Kong was, you know, sort of starting a couple of engines and maybe started too quickly. And, you know, it's a pretty dense population anyway, and they got too many people back together too close and so they had a, a kind of resurgence of the of the virus. But but uh, yeah, if one is careful, thoughtful here. One other thing I mentioned, but notice the Wall Street Journal mentioned it today. I mentioned it in my op-ed. There's costs when people stay at home, and uh, they they cited the Harris County District Attorney down here in Houston, saying we're well, really worried about a lot of child abuse. You know, the um, you know the child protective services are not visiting homes anymore in New York and and other places, and, you know, there's more suicide. I know there's more opioid use, um, more alcohol, et cetera. So, you know, there are reasons to, to start up those jet engines, but l- let me go back to my main question. In addition to distinguishing between New York and Dixon, might we in some places distinguish between, you know, the young and healthy and, and uh, people who are at greater at greater risk demographically?
1: Yes, and, and that's another tool that we have, which is our understanding of the epidemiology, and you're right. Uh, you can use that as a way, uh, to, for the older, really higher risk people, uh, to, to manage them. So that's another thing that can be done, you know, even in Fargo and Dixon and, and in Omaha that, uh, to, to help uh, further control this, as I said, layered on top of more aggressive testing, isolation, containment, you know, if anybody does test positive. So I, I, again, I think that's yet another wonderful thing because we, we we have information about this virus that tells us a lot more about who are going who's likely to get into a real problem and as you and I have talked the, the, the thing that that I worry enormously about is really the the healthcare system and, and, and bending it and maybe, uh and crashing it and so uh, all of these 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 possibilities of say in the in the red states, in the center of the country, uh, we have the possibility uh, with the bed capacity and, and the doctors and nurses and whatnot that are there to be able to, you know, handle small amounts and then clamp down if it starts to become a problem. Uh, and uh, so that that is that, that's an important point.
0: Yeah. And and your capacity point that you've made to me several times right now would be, I guess we'd agree with Governor Cuomo here and, and, and Governor uh, Gavin Newsom. That is, uh, you know, Governor Cuomo says, well, great. You sent me 400 uh, ventilators, but I need 30,000. Uh, oh, okay, sorry, I was wrong, you sent me 4000 but I need 30000 This This would be your worry now, right? Capacity, uh, personnel getting sick, uh, not having enough people in the hospital, particularly in these high-intensity areas.
1: That's, that's right, and that, that, that's the worry. I mean, I was going to be in New York last week at New York Presbyterian Cornell uh, in Lenox Hill, you know, meeting with physicians, talking about a, a medicine we developed for uh, reversing anticoagulation. You know, xarelto eloquis, you know, people have major bleeding, such as in the head. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, uh, uh, you know, and as I was really, you know, contemplating, A, whether I was going to go out, and then B, what I was going to say to these docs, it just became apparent. So I just even watched the TV. I didn't even have a chance to talk to them because they've been so busy, uh, is is that you can really bring a hospital and a system to its needs and you know the, the governor Cuomo I think is correct. I, I haven't checked his math. I don't know if that's thirty thousand that you need at the peak or if it's thirty thousand you know if you integrate over two, three months or whatever you did the the number you really need to know by the way on the ventilators is is what at the peak of the Um, of the the epidemic, local epidemic, what are the numbers you're going to need? You don't want to integrate. Let's say it's over three months. We're going to need 30,000 people going to be on ventilators over three months. Well, somebody needs to be on a ventilator maybe for uh, a week to two weeks. That ventilator can be cleaned and then used for the next patient. So you are able to get some. So that that's just one thing that jumps out in terms of it. But the concept of overloading a medical system, is really important. And so New York, for example, more or less on on, on intense quarantine right now is important for, to give that health care system a shot. Uh, but, you know, again, think of the bright side of this, knowing what we're learning, and I think Governor Cuomo's right, You know how they're dealing with this, you can apply those same lessons. I thought a very creative idea he came up with yesterday, and he talked more about it today, uh, is the idea of Taking advantage of this regionality, if we have ventilators that are relatively, you know, an excess number in, in, let's say, uh, certain parts of the country, ship those to New York, lend them to the New York folks to get them over that hump, get them clean, sterilized, and send them back to where they're next needed. So that's another whole way, again, thinking about this on a regional basis, that I think we can get through this. And that I think is our biggest hope for threading the needle. Of, of managing this outbreak, and then um, and, and then not not killing our economy, and of course, you know, it, it's, I think people have said there's two ways that this is likely to end. One is that we get a highly effective vaccine and we, we get the level of immunity up, or if we don't get a highly effective vaccine, this concept of herd immunity, where a substantial number of people, fifty, sixty percent of the population, develop immunity, um, and so. One of those is going to have to happen. And if, if the vaccine is not to be, for some reason we don't have great success there, although I'm optimistic, um, one just needs to then level this out and, and allow this um, uh, to gradually uh, build up that immunity and hopefully build up the immunity in younger people who are not going to have serious consequences with the disease. They can well, They can become the herd the elements of the herd that are going to ultimately protect uh, the rest of us. Like uh, like you, do. I'm in that high-risk population as well.
0: Does I that mean we shouldn't, uh, Governor DeSantis, my friend in Florida, shouldn't be telling all those kids to stop crowding around the beach? Maybe they're doing some good. Are they developing crowd immunity?
1: Uh, well, at some point, yes. But, I mean, may, let's say at some point, maybe. right now, no. Uh, I think the governor is correct. The reason is is that we don't we don't have the, the broad testing, as well as the what's called serology, the ability to look at the serum or plasma after an infection and see whether or not antibodies are there. Until that kind of testing is wide based and we can implement that, uh, I think he is absolutely right. But as you say, that's related to letting younger people go to restaurants and stuff. You know, I mean, you know, that, that is one, once we are able to really quickly identify who, who might be having uh, problems, uh, that's, that's the way you, I think, uh, let the disease run its course, um, uh, until there's the vaccine. And uh, and also to allow the economy to at least get a couple of those jet engines started.
0: Two last things, and then I want to let you go. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people, just because I've been on this issue for a long time, about China. And, um, and they ought to pay a price on this, shouldn't they? I mean, they really behave very, very badly. Do you agree?
1: Based on everything I know, I would say yes. Um, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately, it's not a country that uh, we, we, we have a lot of visibility into, and so all of the details, they may be worse than what we think, or maybe they're not quite as bad, but in any rate, uh, I do think that their impulse to downplay this, you know, for the sake of national pride, national business, or whatever drove them, uh, certainly uh, caused this delay. And you can see the value of that if you compare Italy to the U.S., and and I'm, and whatever we did in this country, in part banning people coming in, just whatever, but what you see is is time is everything, and if something takes off explosively as it did in Italy, it's really hard to catch up with it and one of the things that we're seeing here in the United States, because we've had a couple of additional weeks is that it, it makes it does make a difference, and that's where I would really. No matter whether the story in China is worse than what we know, or not as bad as what we we understand, either way, that that early notification, you know, Houston, we have a problem, you know, rest of the world, we have a problem, and I think the WHO saying in middle of January that there was no evidence of human uh, to, to human transmission was also I mean just uh, unacceptable, you know that that. Yeah, whatever the reason is, it's all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe it really does require, you know, these meat markets or whatever the, the, the vector is there. But, you know, and and again, my point is 10 days, two weeks advance notice is makes a huge difference in your ability to prepare. And, and I think you're going to see that play out in New York where in a nick of time, we're going to come in with the masks. We're gonna come in with the gowns. We're gonna come in with enough ventilators, create enough uh, uh, emergency beds to nurse New York City through this. Um, But imagine if they had not had uh, these several weeks to kind of get ready. And that matters, and that's where I really hold China accountable. Look at the amount of new information we're getting day by day by day. We're going to know more. uh, These curves, I mean, none of the models are perfect. But they do show U.S. cases um, beginning to plateau in about another 10 days or so. Uh, They show New York possibly being able to do that as well, uh, although uh, a little bit different. So I I do think that we will know more. And um, and, 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 and just think about where we were two two, two weeks ago, uh, well, two and a half weeks ago, and think about what we're going to know in two and a half weeks from now. So again, I, I just think that uh, we, we have to we have to be careful now and, 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 and give him a break because I think he's doing a good thing. And what 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 I thought of when he was talking, it, it brought me back to my days in pediatric oncology uh, and and taking care of children with uh, severe immune deficiencies. And one of the things that I I learned early in my career that I practiced my entire career is always to give people hope. Um, And, you know, when you meet a family uh, with a two-year-old with leukemia and you have to tell them that news, you also have to then give examples, paint pictures, and I would say, you know, you know that that little gal that you just saw out in the waiting room, you know, that was out there playing with her doll? And I go. I, they go. Yeah, yeah. I said she was like your little girl three years ago, exactly in the same spot. And you need to give people tangible pictures that they can see, because you know this, this, this is not the end of the world. This is not the plague. It's not going to kill us all. And and I and I think it's appropriate to, to put that in there. And the other thing is, it also gets another set of engines, you know, when the jet engines start up, there's a little bit of period, you know, where they're kind of just revving a little bit. And and I think people's brains have to start revving a little bit to think about, okay, what are we gonna do next? And the virus is not gonna be gone for quite a while. So we're gonna have to figure out how do we coexist with it for a period of time, just like we do with influenza and other and other viruses.
0: John, thank you very, very much.
1: Listen, Bill, I, I hope this is helpful, and uh, it's great to talk with you about this, and um, hopefully uh, we shed a little bit of more more light on, on the situation
0: here. You are a not a doctor of darkness. You are a doctor of light, and I, I appreciate it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett, Show. Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. All right, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to Show.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook to search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.